outrightinternational.org Ukraine. Hello from the employees of the Commonwealth Club. Before we begin, we want to take a moment to acknowledge the international crisis taking place in Ukraine and highlight an organization providing humanitarian assistance to people living in or fleeing Ukraine because of the war. Outright Action International is an organization dedicated to fighting for the human rights of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, intersex, and queer people everywhere. In response to the Russian invasion, Outright established a Ukraine fund to support local partners in Ukraine and neighboring countries who are providing emergency assistance to LGBTIQ people in need of safe shelter, food, medical care, transportation for those fleeing the country, and other types of humanitarian support. Because mainstream humanitarian systems too frequently leave LGBTIQ people behind. We encourage you to learn more about how to support Outright's important work by visiting outrightinternational.org slash Ukraine. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good afternoon. My name is Molly Ball. I am the National Political Correspondent for Time Magazine. I am so pleased to be back at the Commonwealth Club to moderate today's program, focusing on the great new book, Majority Minority, by Justin Guest, Associate Professor of Policy and Government at George Mason University. And I am pleased that Justin is here to speak about his book, along with the former mayor of Los Angeles, Antonio Villaraigosa, who knows these issues firsthand from his leadership of America's second largest city. As the country continues to discuss the 2020 election and prepares for 2022 and 2024, the impact of America's continuing evolution as a multiracial democracy continues to draw attention across the political spectrum. Majority-minority obviously refers to a time uh, when whites are a minority in the United States, a landmark that the demographers tell us is fast approaching. Yet the impact of these changing demographics on our politics is happening now, and they are constantly changing. It's not just one impact, it is many, and Justin's new book is unique and fascinating in the way that it focuses on case studies of six societies that have undergone this majority-minority transition. We obviously have a lot to learn from these examples, and we will discuss them here today. A quick note before we jump into today's program, if you have a question as we're talking for Justin or Mayor Viragosa, please put it in the YouTube chat box. Uh, questions there will be forwarded to me during the program, and I will get to as many of them as possible, and we'll carve out some time specifically for questions near the end. Uh, so uh, with that said, uh, let's get started. I want to start by throwing it out to you, Justin, uh, to just talk a little about your book, introduce us to the concept, and tell us how you decided uh, to, pursue this, to pursue this particular research. Sure. Thank you so much, Molly, and, and thank you to you and, and Mayor, Mayor Villaraigosa and, and the Commonwealth Club uh, for, for, for joining this event. Um, you know, this book is something that's both very personal, but also emerges from my, my own professional trajectory. Um, I grew up in Los Angeles, California, and I went to Los Angeles Unified School District schools, uh, which were at the time even majority minority already. And so in many ways, I think Los Angeles in the 1990s presaged uh, the, the demographic shifts that, of course, uh, will soon beset the entire country. And so, you know, I feel like I was raised uh, in a majority minority society and, and conscious of its politics uh, from an early stage. But then as I you know, pursued my research over the course of my career, I studied many subjects in the fields of immigration and the politics of demographic change, everything from minority politics to the politics of nativism and white working class people. And, uh, and, and really, in many ways, this book feels like a sort of culmination of those things. Um, at its core, the book is really about how societies respond to great demographic change. You know, even though that majority minority milestone that you mentioned is still off, you know, a ways into the future, in many ways, the politics and, and the specter of that change uh, overshadow, you know, today's current affairs in the United States and the way Americans understand their country and I think themselves. Um, you know, at the core uh, of, of the book's argument, I really push uh, hard against the idea that we will only be able to adapt to this demographic change once you know, we are able to eradicate racism and prejudice, which are obviously vexing scourges in American society and worldwide. Um, but if we wait until that's all eradicated to make progress, we're going to be waiting a very long time. 
uh, what I find in those six societies that you, you thoughtfully mentioned uh, is that in many ways, you know, race and racism and prejudice, these are the components of the turf on which progress must be made. Uh, even in the societies that adapted best to demographic change, prejudice persisted. And so, you know, I think that's a humbling uh, a reality, um, but it also means that the key is not uh, the eradication of prejudice and racism. It actually means that majority minority milestones are inherently governed. They're subject to the management of political leaders, business leaders, civil society leaders, their institutions that they promote, the policies that they pass, and the rhetoric that they use. And all of that, of course, um, yields um, certain critical junctures where society can pivot towards coexistence on the one hand or conflict on the other. So, uh, Mayor Viragosa, as you hear Justin talk about this, do you agree with what he's saying? And, and what questions does it raise for you? What does it resonate with uh, in your experience, particularly in governing uh, a large, diverse city? Well, first of all, I want to thank uh, the Commonwealth Club for inviting me here today once again. been there, uh, I think, two times now. Uh, this is the third. Uh, Justin, thank you for your book, your books, uh, rather. I think this is a fascinating exploration of the dynamics of change, demographic change uh, around the world, uh, and certainly here in, you know, with um, impact here in uh, the United States. And Molly, it's an honor to be here with you. You know, look, I, um, I found it fascinating because uh, in, intuitively, I understood uh, from the beginning um, uh, I started out as a, as a student a leader uh, with the Black Student Union and then the United Mexican-American Students, was involved in the Third World Coalition, involved in a progressive coalition uh, around the bombings in Cambodia. And um, I remember early on that uh, it, it was really important to reach out to a broad cross-section of people. When I first, uh, you know, I was president of a union that was probably 65% African-American. And I knew uh, that to be a leader that they respected, I had to understand um, you know, them and the others in that union. And over the years, when I first ran for office, I ran the state assembly for um, in a civil rights creative district, the Voting Rights Act required that they not, you know, um, redistrict uh, people of color, in this case Latinos, in a way that would undermine their voting power. Uh, I, we were a majority in that uh, district, but a very small minority of voters. And so I, I intuitively understood I had to explain and project uh, the, the fact that I wanted to be a leader for everybody. And all along the way, uh, I was majority whip, majority leader and speaker in the 90s. I ran for mayor uh, in 2001, which we can talk about in a minute. Uh, but at every turn, uh, I understood that to break a glass ceiling, to shatter it, I had to demonstrate that I was uh, a leader for all of us. I was oftentimes criticized uh, among Latinos as not being Latino enough, even though my entire life had been uh, involved in the Chicano movement and the civil rights movement. I, I understood that it, the, the criticism used to be that I was always with the blacks and the Jews. Uh, and what I said to people, well, they live here too. Uh, I want to be a mayor for all of us. Um, I'm, I'm fascinated by, uh, you know, uh, what uh, Justin uh, has been studying over the years because I think LA's lived it. And I think more and more cities across the country, and as we've seen in his book, uh, other nations have lived it, and certainly uh, interested in exploring that in the course of this interview. Yeah, and Justin, one of the things that I found so fascinating reading the book 
was the ways in which our sort of narrow American conceptions of, of quote unquote identity politics and the, the dynamics uh, that, that Mayor Villaraigosa describes uh, intersect in interesting ways at, uh, and then don't overlap in some interesting ways with what, what what happens in these other societies, many of which are dealing with, you know, legacies of, of colonialism and migration, which of course we have here too. Can you talk a little bit about uh, some of those examples that you studied and, and how you think they, they do and don't map onto what's happening here in the United States? Sure, sure. Thanks, Molly. Um, you know, in many ways, you know, uh, YouTube is not the best uh, platform to, to really get into detail about each of these very complicated and interesting uh, societies. Um, but I'll give you a brief overview. So I study three different types of, of places um, that I sort of categorize by the outcomes of the demographic change in its politics. So I study Singapore and Bahrain, Singapore, the Southeast Asian city-state, Bahrain, the island off the coast of the Arabian Peninsula, um, which both uh, are, are really subject to suppression where ethnic or religious minorities uh, are subject to state-sponsored suppression in some way or another. And of course, both, both of these are autocracies. Um, then I study Mauritius and Trinidad and Tobago. Mauritius, an island off the coast of Madagascar in the Indian Ocean. Trinidad and Tobago, a pair of islands in the East Caribbean Sea, um, which are democracies and are subject to really racialized politics and seemingly you know, intractable uh, ethnic tension. And then I study Hawaii and New York. And of course, uh, most Americans know where these places are. Um, but Hawaii is not uh, a state in the, in the case of this book. It's actually its own country, uh, because up until the American uh, uh, government forcibly annexed Hawaii in uh, 1893, uh, Hawaii was its, uh, its own country, a sovereign monarchy, uh, obviously uh, as an archipelago in, in the Central Pacific Ocean. Um, and then New York City in New York uh, of course, is never its own country, even if New Yorkers wish it were. Um, you know, New York, however, had sovereign control over its immigration uh, policy up until 1882, when all of immigration policy was federalized in the United States. And uh, those two societies, Hawaii and New York, uh, were different. Uh, they weren't subject to major suppression. Um, they weren't subject to, to intractable ethnic tension. They were subject to something different, a sort of redefinition of what it means to be Hawaiian, what it means to be an American. And that reconstitution of an identity uh, sets them apart from the other cases. Uh, and so I study all six together comparatively. And in many ways, they have a lot in common. We see a very uh, consistent sort of um, uh, set of events that take place uh, on their chronological path towards a majority-minority milestone. Uh, they begin with colonialism, the industrialization of labor forces, and, and, and the commoditization of, of agriculture. Um, often slavery and indentured servitude, a lot of segregation, but then they start to sort of, you know, by, they start to diverge um, when it comes to whether you enfranchise minority groups uh, and how you construct the national or, 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 or societal identity. And that's what really leads to these differences, I find, across the different societies. So, you know, our, our viewers today are welcome to sort of double click on any of these six societies by reading their respective chapters in the book, but I'm also happy to take questions about them too. Well, and everyone, of course, should buy the book and, and read every word of it and study it closely and potentially assign it in their undergraduate seminars. Uh, but Mayor Viragosa, you put your finger on uh, one of the really interesting and, and key points of, of Justin's book, right, which is that political leaders have to make decisions about how they're going to lead and whether they are going to try to be leaders for everyone or to be more, more factional leaders or to, or, to, or to lead, you know, based on uh, a certain conception of identity. Talk a little bit, you, you mentioned how difficult that choice can be when you're facing pressure from, from your own group in some cases. Talk through how you approach that decision and, 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 and why and how uh, you tried to uh, be more inclusive in your approach to politics. It started with my mom. My mom raised us. Uh, mom was a single mom. Uh, father um, was an alcoholic and, um, you know, was, lived in a home of domestic violence. Uh, my mom was uh, a second generation American of Mexican descent. She'd always tell us that we should be proud of being an American, but also proud of our heritage. Uh, and so early on, um, I, I understand, and, you know, in the 1950s, um, we had Japanese Americans, uh, Jews, uh, African-Americans, and looking back, even a gay couple uh, at our home for dinner. My mother was a very open, uh, socially progressive, not necessarily politically, um, but very 
uh, open to other groups. And so I grew up uh, in that environment. I also grew up in a place called Boyle Heights, which was the Ellis Island uh, of Los Angeles. It's where the Jews came early on. There were Japanese Americans uh, and Latinos in big numbers. Uh, also African-Americans and Armenians, white Russians, but mostly Japanese Americans, I'm sorry, Jews, uh, Latinos and Japanese Americans. And I think that social milieu uh, gave me uh, a comfort in different communities. And I've, often, I've read in the past about cultural intelligence. And I think those of us who have uh, this sense of understanding, uh, empathy, uh, but importantly, respect for the different cultures, uh, it, did, it wasn't a difficult transition for me to try to be a leader for all of us. I knew my base would be Latinos, and it was, but I knew that uh, if I, I could uh, make it clear that I was going to be a leader for all of us, uh, that I would be a successful uh, leader in a uh, you know, multiracial, multiethnic polyglot. Um, you know, I've often said when I speak about L.A., I said, um, L.A. doesn't care who your father was. In my case, they didn't care that I didn't have one. Uh, and today, uh, they don't care if you have two of them. Uh, L.A. says, just do it. And in so many ways, I think that's why uh, Justin picked, uh, you know, a former mayor of Los Angeles. Because, you know, we, we reveled, and I, in the time that I was in public office, I reveled in the notion that we really are a, a harbinger of what the future was going to be like in the United States of America. You know, the, the intermarriage uh, among us, I think with Latinos, 40% of their uh, intermarriages are, are with whites and others. And in, in so many, um, so many of our communities, there's, there's uh, a, um, you know, an interaction, I think, although we're still segregated, an interaction that has opened us uh, to uh, the breadth of diversity uh, and also the richness of uh, our diversity. We come from everywhere, every corner of the earth uh, to plant our flag here and to reach for the stars and follow our dreams. Well, Mayor, if I can stick with you for a minute, you know, we're, we're talking about a nation that's becoming more diverse, in many ways, a nation that's coming to, to resemble Los Angeles more, although Los Angeles obviously has a history not only of diversity, but of racial conflict as well. Do you, and, and many people feel like our country's divisions aren't getting better, that they're deepening, that as we become more diverse, we are becoming, you know, more segregated, more alienated, that we're having trouble getting along. Do you feel like the, the trajectory is, is positive or negative in terms of how we're doing with this, this transition as we approach it? You know, I was always honest about, uh, not, not Pollyannish, but honest about our history. I remember when I invited Xi Jinping to Los Angeles, uh, I, uh, in that speech with President Biden, uh, Jerry Brown, Governor Jerry Brown there, uh, 300 leaders from all over California, uh, I reminded us uh, at, that uh, we had had a sordid history uh, with Chinese immigration, that we had lynched Chinese in California and Los Angeles, uh, that we have a, a, a racialized history that we shouldn't be proud of. By the same token, uh, I talked about, you know, the the progress we've made uh, over the decades. Uh, President Obama always used to talk about that we're, we're always striving to make uh, us a more perfect union, uh, to put real teeth uh, and truth uh, to the founding fathers. And there were mothers along the way, but the founding fathers' conception of that all men are created equal. We know that at the time, they meant white men, and only white men that were propertied. They didn't mean Native Americans or African Americans and, uh, or any of the other ethnics that have come here. Uh, so I think it's important to be honest about that, but not to dwell on it, uh, not to focus on it constantly, uh, to talk about uh, the, the opportunities that come uh, with, the, as I said, this richness that comes with the diversity. You, you look at, 
uh, Korean American immigrants, as an example. I'm very proud of the fact that, uh, as I, they used to say when I was in Korea, and I visited them some five times, had, uh, I believe, two presidents over my home, uh, that we had the seventh largest Korean population. What, what an inspiration they were when you'd see them working 14 and 16 hours a day, their kids getting, uh, you know, reading and uh, getting educated and, uh, you know, studying rather, and then going on to, to great success. The Latino immigrants, uh, you know, that have started from nothing with a shirt on their back and have made it, and, and the, the many other communities. Uh, you, you look at what uh, African-Americans have had to go through in this country uh, with, you know, centuries of uh, slavery, Jim Crow, and, you know, this continued uh, level of discrimination, I think, that sh shouldn't be tolerated in a country like ours, and see all the success uh, among them. And uh, I choose to uh, always acknowledge our past and, and what we're and, you know, the, the, the struggles that we have to overcome, but also to, to celebrate that uh, this is a great place. Uh, it's not a perfect place. Uh, we need to make it better. Uh, and we need to work together to, to do what uh, New York did in many ways. And, you know, uh, Justin chronicled that in his book. Uh, it, initially, whites were white Protestants from England and maybe uh, the Netherlands and Germany and a little bit of France. And over time, it included the Irish and the Italians and the Southern Europeans. And uh, I think uh, we want to see the same thing happen. And I hope the same thing happens, and I believe it will, with Latinos and Asians and Africans, uh, African-Americans. And so um, that's uh, the challenge before us. Well, and Justin, let me ask you a version of that same question, because as you mentioned in your book, you describe the choice that these diversifying societies have to either pivot to coexistence or pivot to conflict, that sort of wonderful formulation. Uh, which track do you think uh, the United States is on? Yeah, Molly, it's such a complicated question, right? Because we're such a complicated uh, country. Um, we also have different levels of governance, which make it challenging to really make a decision here. Um, what you see in the United States are countervailing pressures and countervailing outcomes. Um, on the one hand, you know, there are tons of pivots towards inclusion, uh, whether it's in the space of the arts and sports and music, uh, whether it's in commerce and the interdependencies of our economic system, uh, you know, whether it's in the socialization of our youth into integrated schools, you know, that are championing diversity uh, and, 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 you know, talking about our, our nation's complicated history. Um, on the other hand, uh, there are countervailing pressures going the other direction. Uh, we are consumed by a sense of nationalism and nostalgia right now. Many people feel discomforted by the threat uh, of demographic change. And, uh, and, and as a result, we see also pressures towards exclusion uh, through the hardening of different identities, um, through you know, the, the, uh, the uh, inflammation of politics around school curriculum uh, and curricula. Uh, the creation of domestic threats, people perceiving that the greatest threat to their society is internal, uh, the other political side, um, and the polarization that results. And so in many ways, I think that the United States is at a, cross, a crossroads, uh, that we are sort of teetering uh, between the politics of coexistence and conflict. Um, and in many ways, it's not actually being led at the national level because these politics are absolutely paralyzing. Uh, we see gridlock and a stalemate nationally. And so states and municipalities have stepped in to that void. And that's where you're really seeing these cross currents. Um, so really, you know, whether we're pivoting towards conflict or coexistence, inclusivity or exclusivity depends on where you look in the United States. Mayor Villagrosa, how concerned are you? I mean, I know you said that you, you're an optimist and, and you try to see the best uh, in, in America, but, but, you know, a lot of people in our political system are very alarmed about the future of our democracy and whether it can be sustained given the, this deep polarization, these deep divisions. How worried are you? I want to return to, to the issue of uh, uh, my optimism about the future, but uh, with respect to the issue of race and ethnicity, but uh, with respect to uh, our democracy, I'm very concerned. Um, I think we, we see an assault on democracy, not just here in the United States, but around the world. 
You see it in Latin America. You see it in Europe. Uh, we obviously see it in Asia and, and Africa. Uh, from my vantage point, uh, that is, you know, the, the notion of a liberal democracy, uh, you know, separation of powers. These are important uh, things, you know, a, a capitalism that should work for more of us. Um, I think are, are, are challenges facing uh, the nation and the world. I think all of us uh, are, are watching uh, with horror what's happening in the Ukraine, uh, where a, um, a dictator uh, is not just invaded a country, but is attempting to turn uh, that country into a vassal state, a satellite, if you will, um, without uh, the kind of democratic institutions that I think are important uh, and I think are the best way to get to the optimism that I spoke about. Uh, let, let me share something. I, my, I'm assuming that I was asked to be here not because I'm an expert, but because I've lived some of this. When I first ran for mayor, I started out uh, 9%. I was Speaker of the Assembly. 9% of the people knew me. Uh, the primary opponent, 76% of the people knew him. 3% uh, said they would vote for me. Uh, a year later, I beat him in the primary, uh, and I lost uh, in the runoff. Uh, I lost in the runoff in no small part because they did an ad, an attack ad, that used crime and the specter of crime uh, to, to marginalize me, uh, to make me look scary, uh, to, to, to remind people that of the changing demographics in our town. Uh, there were times uh, when I would extend my hand because I, I, I would do 40-hour bus tours, 24-hour bus tours. I'd go all over the town. I'd extend my hand uh, to people. And, you know, on the, a few occasions, they spit on the ground. Uh, hit my hand and say, get your hand uh, away from me. Uh, I, I, I remember uh, an, an incident not so long, you know, what, a decade ago, I was Speaker of the Assembly, uh, people saying, go back to Mexico. In fact, uh, Dan, uh, um, a, uh, I won't say his name, but um, a um, reporter columnist wrote a story about the fact that they said go back to Mexico. Uh, I, I, I have seen uh, the ugly face of, you know, discrimination and hate, uh, but I've also seen great things happen. You know, uh, in his book, uh, Justin talks about the role of leadership. Uh, you know, I, I, I stuck to the story of we're a great town and we're a great town because we come here from every corner of the earth with the same dreams and the ho same hopes and aspirations, um, yearning to be free. And over time, uh, I lost that first election. And by the way, the newspaper of record in the primary in 2001 referred to me at every turn uh, as the Latino candidate for mayor. I had to take it all the way to the publisher and, and ask why. And they said, why are you so sensitive about it? And I said, because you're telling people I'm different. I was born and raised here. My grandpa got here 100 years ago. He said, will you be making history? And I said, well, there's a woman running. She'd be making history. You don't call her the female candidate. There's a Jew running. Uh, he'd be making history. You don't call him the Jew candidate. There's a, a gay candidate running, and you don't call him the gay candidate. I know what you're doing. Uh, I think a lot of people know what you're doing. In the runoff, they didn't call me the Latino candidate anymore. Uh, but I joke, uh, I lost that election. Um, I um, won four years later, and uh, eight years after that, a gentleman, uh, the current mayor, who had about an eighth of uh, Latino heritage, ran as a Latino. And I tell people, wow, <laughs> what a difference a, a few years make uh, after all these years saying, I want to bring people together. Uh, let's talk about what we have in common. Let's celebrate the differences and and focus on our commonalities. Uh, the, the, a candidate runs as a, a Latino candidate, something I could, you know, I tried to avoid uh, from the beginning. They tried to paint me as, but in the end, I think people saw me as a uniter and somebody that wanted to bring us together. 
Well, Justin, one of the things, and, and you alluded to this, one of the things I find so interesting about this book is, is that is the way that you came to it, right? Your previous book being about uh, the white working class here in America. Uh, let's talk about American politics and talk about that 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 connection and how how the one led to the other and 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 what you think are the political implications of these demographic shifts we're talking about. Sure, Molly, and this ties in directly with what Mayor Villaraigosa was just describing about his experience uh, in campaigning and 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 in office. Um, you know, over the course of my research on white working class people, both here in the United States and also in Britain, um, and of course, uh, all that research took place before the election of Donald Trump and before uh, the passage of Brexit in Britain. Um, so in many ways, it was a sort of unbiased look at this group of people that really made history uh, for better and worse. Um, what I found is that demographic change and, and the shadow of it was inescapable from their politics, inescapable from their mindset and their, and their lens that they applied uh, to their country's politics and to their local politics. And so, you know, it was it was only sort of, sort of natural for me uh, to want to explore this further, um, you know, by broadening it out uh, into greater context. So many Americans think that what we're doing in the United States is, is exceptional, um, that it's this great experiment. Um, and, and in many ways, of course, so much of America is exceptional. We are a very exceptional place, um, maybe more than we ever really uh, fully uh, appreciate. Um, but in this case, we're not. There are other countries uh, who, or others in other societies that have undergone this majority minority milestone, this great you know, flip of demographic change um, and have endured the politics of its specter. And we can learn from them. They're microcosms. They're all small islands around the world with fragile demographies. Um, but in many ways, the United States is a bit of an island, you know, a sort of fortress um, and, uh, and a crossroads of the world that many islands are. And, uh, and so I think, it's, uh, I think we have a lot to learn from these places uh, to contextualize our politics. But let me return back for a moment um, to what the mayor just described. Um, this was a, you know, all political uh, candidates um, have to be strategic in order to win. And the mayor determined that in the Los Angeles of the 1990s, um, that it was imperative that he not be understood as just a candidate uh, that is associated with a particular identity group. Um, that, you know, that, that certain Latino candidates today no longer feel that that is imperative, um, is a product of how identity politics have now started to consume, I think, general democratic politics in the United States. And this is dangerous for a whole host of reasons. One is the racialization of political parties, no doubt. And we see that at the national level here right now in the United States. You know, uh, the vast majority of ethnic and racial and religious minorities support the Democratic Party on balance. And the Republican Party is about 83, 85 percent uh, white. So five out of every six, if not, if not more, white people uh, or Republicans are, in fact, white. And the problem with that, of course, is that the parties then play to these ethnic groups and they play on identity politics, which makes people think that their political opponents pose existential threats. And that is dangerous for a democracy because people are less willing to lose and more willing to break the rules in order to win, which create these threats to democracy uh, that the mayor fears. But even beyond that, they narrow our understanding of our fellow man down to the salience of their race ethnicity, or religious backgrounds. And they, they, they hinder the sense of linked fate that builds societies together. Further, what they're doing right now, particularly on the democratic side of the aisle, is that they're leading to some complacency. The idea that just because of your ethnic or racial background, that you can and deserve to win, rather than actually leading with policy ideas, with vision for the country, uh, with something that appeals to all, you know, great rewards await those who actually appeal narrowly to stir up a, a, a fervor and, and mobilize voters to get to the polls um, with the sense of that existential threat. And so the cycle is basically reinforced by the incentives that our system creates when we have identity politics at the fore. Mayor, what do you think of that? And particularly when it comes to uh, the Democratic Party, right? There have been so many conversations over the past several years about the Democratic Party's loss of white working class voters, and uh, more recently, the the slippage uh, of of Latino voters who uh, are, are tired of being told you can't vote for that person; he's a racist, and and are looking uh, outside of that paradigm uh, at, at different choices. What do you see happening there, and 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 particularly, what is your advice to the Democratic Party? 
you know, first of all, I don't think I, I, I agree with uh, Justin on the demographics of both parties. I don't think uh, Democrats have a um, a, a monopoly on uh, good ideas necessarily with respect to uh, communities of color. Um, they talk a great game, um, but don't always come through, if you will. Um, I'm not an expert in this regard. I can only tell you uh, of my own experience. Intuitively, I understood um, that if I had a shot at breaking a glass ceiling, and I've broken a couple now uh, in my life, uh, I needed to focus on, on our commonalities, uh, not on our differences. And that's what I tried to do um, at every turn. Um, Sometimes more successful than others. You know, in the, the governor's race, in a very blue party, whites voted for the, other, for the winner uh, three to one. Uh, he was white. Latinos voted for me three to one. And as I understand, um, Asians voted overwhelmingly as well for uh, the Asian candidate. And so even among Democrats, uh, to what do you ascribe uh, that overwhelmingly support for a member of their own tribe, if you will? I, I don't know. Um, I, I think we need to study it. Um, I, I do think, however, uh, it, it's um, uh, that leadership matters. Um, and I, at every turn, you know, I joke with the Greeks, I was via Regosopoulos. With the Armenians, I was via Regosian. Uh, with the Persians, I was via Regosian. Uh, I was a brother in, in the African-American community. I mean, people saw that I was always present. Uh, Jews, uh, and I'm not just talking about the the you know, more liberal Jews, but the Orthodox and all across the spectrum. I was in those communities uh, trying to understand their aspirations, their needs, and, and making clear that I wanted to be a leader for all of them. I think our leaders need to do that, whether they're Democrat or Republican. I don't think we can allow ourselves to, to uh, you know, to tribalize this great country. Um, and I, I think uh, Justin talks about that, uh, the, the difference between those who try to divide and those who try to bring us together. And actually, I think in the, one of his op-ed pieces, uh, gives advice, uh, small things that President Biden can do, besides, uh, as he claimed, uh, as he described, the passionate rhetoric of that, uh, you know, speech, um, the importance of trying to even things out in a way that make people feel like we all have a level fair playing field. And that's true for uh, not just people of color, but whites as well. Uh, you know, uh, I think this whole notion that it, every time somebody makes a, uh, you know, a, a dumb statement that they should be canceled for the rest of their life, you know, I just don't buy it. You know, we everybody's made dumb statements in their lives. And I think we, we, we need to be a, a little more tolerant of one another, uh, you know, uh, willing to uh, educate people, not just scream at them. And uh, I tried to do that. Uh, I wasn't always, uh, you know, successful, but I always tried to, uh, to identify those commonalities that we share. And I, I think that's what more of us have to do, both Democrat and Republican. Right now, we're living in a very polarized time, Molly and Justin, all of you, I think we know that. Uh, you know, the, I've never seen, the, probably not, I'm a history major, uh, probably not since the Civil War have we been so divided. Uh, but we had a great leader uh, who, in his uh, second inauguration uh, speech, talked about us coming together, uh, talking about, you know, identifying our commonalities. He was ready before he was assassinated to accept the Confederacy and, and the Southern states into the, the, the great uh, federation that we are and republic that we are. And I, I think we just, we can't allow the, the, the dividers to rue the day. And, and dividers, by the way, not just on the right. I come from the left. I'm a progressive, unabashedly. 
uh, but I'm not a born again progressive. Uh, I was a progressive in the in the 1960s. Uh, you know, um, when I when I watch these people screaming constantly from either side, uh, all they're doing is tearing uh, the country apart. And I think we need people that want to bring us together. Uh, that's what I tried to talk about in the governor's race. You know, uh, an economy that's working for more people. You know, in California, the fifth largest economy in the world, uh, with the highest rate of poverty in the United States of America, a level of poverty that you have to ask yourself, is this really the way it's supposed to work? Can we do better than this? I think those are the leveling that playing field helps all of us uh, acknowledge uh, our common journey uh, for a better life here in this country and in the world. And I think what you actually understood intuitively as a political candidate and, and eventually an elected official um, are two dirty secrets that statisticians otherwise study. And that is that even though 60% of the United States population today is white, 70% of voters are white. And I'm sure a similar you know, uh, discrepancy was true in Los Angeles and California at the time that you ran. Um, and then secondly, that whiteness itself is something totally subjective. You know, and it's some, it's subject to uh, how you feel, you know, about yourself, how you perceive yourself, but how you think other other people perceive you. And there has historically been a sort of um, aspirational whiteness, I think, in the United States among minorities uh, who want to shed uh, the, the baggage of structural discrimination and disadvantage in our country uh, and adopt, uh, the, you know, and assimilate into whiteness. And that, you know, vexing pressure. Uh, to assimilate and also to reinforce the politics of whiteness and race um, continue. And so I, and I just think that, you know, in your public statements and your, the rhetoric that you led, the policies that you tried to pursue, um, you know, I think you intuitively understood that, um, that it wasn't going to be possible to ever be uh, just a Latino candidate uh, alone. Uh, and I think that's really actually um, powerful, but I don't know that the electoral incentives today, um, you know, will create the same kind of intuition uh, among uh, contemporary candidates. Well, and let, let's be clear. Let's be clear. Uh, I wasn't successful uh, in my last uh, run, um, and uh, you know, I, I right now I think we're living at a time uh, when people um, don't want to hear one another. They don't want to listen. Uh, they think they have all the answers. Uh, they like screaming and pointing fingers instead of you know, embracing one another and working uh, on the challenges that we face. And uh, I refuse to accept that paradigm. And I don't believe it's the future uh, of the United States of America. I, re I really uh, do believe, I, I, you know, I don't wrap myself around the flag and I don't believe that if you burn the flag or kneel down, don't refuse to kneel down to the flag that you're, you're an American. I'm a proud American and I do believe in this country. Uh, and I believe that uh, we will overcome this polarization you are a history uh, buff uh, and major and you know professor and and in many ways we know that history is cyclical and uh, there will be a better time in this country you know as as we all mix more and more uh, you know I joke uh, with a friend of mine who's a candidate for mayor of Los Angeles um, she uh, her children are Mexican and she, uh, they call them blacksican you know more and more, we're, we're, we're mixed. I've been at the Seder's, uh, you know, uh, where, you know, uh, a Jewish family has, you know, Latinos, African-Americans and Asians uh, that are now their grandchildren. Um, and, and I think over time, we're going to realize that uh, this zero-sum game of race uh, is not going to work for us. Um, we have real existential threats in the world to our democracy uh, to the peace in the world uh, that require us uh, uh, to come together. And uh, we have a real opportunity to be a better America uh, that I think require us uh, to come together. If you're in the audience, please keep those questions coming. We've had a few come in so far, and we're going to get to them in just a second. But before before I do that, I just want to go back to you one more time, Justin. Um, as you mentioned, that as you both have, have have alluded to, there are powerful incentives for politicians to be divisive rather than unifying, and uh, and 
and and whether it's you know human nature or or socially constructive that sort of deep pull of identity and tribalism is so powerful in our human communities and um, there was and 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 we do see both parties seeing advantages there was a time when the democratic party thought that the the increase, increasing diversity of our country meant that there would be a permanent democratic majority why didn't that happen and what are the how do the incentives shape uh, this political conversation? Sure. Uh, well, let's start off with why that didn't happen. And you know, the the philosophy or the the um, approach that you were describing, Molly, was the idea that demography is destiny. That was the sort of slogan uh, during some of the early Obama years. Um, and you know, that idea was proven false. Um, not only with you know, if you look at current electoral trends, um, but it was always lazy. It was always complacent uh, to presume that, you know, people's politics were going to be so heavily determined by their identity that they're going to be sort of sheep, uh, you know, to their identities and to identity politics. Um, but also lazy that it suggested that the party didn't have to evolve with contemporary events. Uh, it suggested that they could rest on their laurels and just allow demographic change to let rip. And um, and of course, it failed. Um, and, you know. Any Democrat will say and point out the nature of American electoral institutions, which um, disadvantage um, uh, the Democratic Party right now because of the favor and the weight, uh, outsized weight given to rural regions, to wider districts, to states, um, as opposed to actually uh, population distributions. Um, but at the same time, you know, it, it's becoming increasingly clear um, that demog demography is not destiny. Um, even if it you know, predicts our population, it doesn't predict how people think. You have to persuade. You still have to go out and come up with ideas. You know, you still have to actually think on your feet and evolve with the challenges facing the country. And so it was always a, a lazy approach to politics. Um, and similarly, you know, to answer your other question, Molly, um, about what we do is we have to actually think. We have to actually create. Uh, we have to create a new identity for the country. And that is such a difficult you know, problem for Democrats, um, you know, who who really have always thought of nationalism as being something foul and vile and and left to only the right. But it's too powerful of a sentiment to allow the right to monopolize uh, Democrats. If they want to be successful, the left more broadly have to create a more civic sense of nationalism that is as inclusive of all as it is also exclusive, something that gives Americans and their constituents a sense of distinction uh, and distinguishment. And that threading of the needle between being inclusive and exclusive, um, you know, it's almost an oxymoron. Um, it sounds incredibly daunting, but that's actually the work of politics. That's the work of leaders. They thread that needle and they look for what actually unites a country. And if it's enough of a, of a priority, then they pursue it and they deal with the sacrifices it comes with. And unfortunately, that amount of courage and that amount of creativity is in very short supply. But if we are going to surmount what I believe is the greatest social challenge facing uh, this country for the next generation, it's going to take that hard work. And, and Mayor, you talked about wrapping yourself in the flag, which, is, as, as Justin mentioned, can can uh, can be offensive even in some circles. What, what do you what do you make of his sort of call for a, a new uh, sort of liberal nationalism? You know, I. I think it's it conforms with what I my own experience is that let's focus on what we have in common. You know, uh, I, I know in one of his books he talks about, uh, or at least in an article that I read uh, about our you know organizations like AmeriCorps. You know, okay, we don't believe in the draft any longer. Um, I, I think there are some that disagree with that notion. Uh, you know, some kind of service is important. You know. Uh, you, you get to meet uh, a, a young man or a woman from uh, a small town in Alabama, uh, East LA, or, or you know, or somewhere in the Midwest. Uh, you, you get to realize that there are things you agree on and things that you disagree on. And from my vantage point, I, I think that uh, there is nothing wrong with uh, you, you called it uh, a, a a liberal nationalism. You know. I think this notion of civitas uh, that, uh, you know, inherent to living in this country and not just being a citizen, by the way, but inherent to being, you know, 
being able to live in this country, we should all give back. Uh, and there should be uh, opportunities for us to give back uh, and, and all of us, not just the poor and the middle class, but all of us to give back. Uh, I think a, a notion of uh, civitas that not uniquely American, but you uniquely helps us come together, I think is important. And I, I, uh, I agree with that notion. But you know, the most radical thing that I think Mayor Villaraigosa said in our conversation so far was the way he championed heritage. Because that is something I think that is so uh, such a faux pas right now on the left of American politics. Um, you know, there's almost a sort of self-flogging going on. The idea that if you're honoring heritage, revering those who came, you know, who have been in the United States, of course, who were predominantly white historically, um, that you're doing something wrong uh, and that you're, it's a slight against, you know, the, the emergent uh, population dynamics. Um, but actually, you know, that's exactly what you have to do to win. You can't exclude, you know, white working class people and just redline 40% of the country. You can't exclude white people more broadly um, from the country of the future that, you know, progressives are pushing the, the country towards. Um, and, and I think that, you know, that is radical right now. And even if it was sort of de rigueur, you know, in the time when, when, when the mayor won um, those elections in the 1990s and 2000s, um, you know, it, it is, it is quickly fallen out of fashion. And I think to our own de detriment. Well, that's a great segue to this question that we have from the audience, which is what policies have the best chance to cross all ethnic communities? Mayor, you want to take that? Yeah, you know, uh, when I, in, 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 I remember in the, I think it was 1996 or seven, um, the Latino caucus in the legislature, I was now, uh, it was 97, I was majority leader. And uh, they wanted to do, you know, the, the most, uh, the, the ethnic community that with the uh, least amount of health care were, were Latinos. Uh, and they wanted me to do a bill uh, for Latino health care. And I said to them, I think they were 69% of the uninsured. And I said to them, why would we want to do that? I said, they'll give us five million bucks, you know, a few million dollars. They'll put a sunset on it. Uh, because it's just for one group. Why don't we say all kids ought to have health care? Uh, I did the Healthy Families program. Uh, I was able to get Pete Wilson, a Republican governor, to sign on to that. Some 750,000 kids got health care. It was inclusive. Uh, it was uniting. Uh, yes, 69% of them were Latino. But what did that have to do with the price of uh, wheat in uh, you know, Iowa? Uh, you know, at the end of the day, uh, I picked the right state. Uh, it, but at the end of the day, what we're looking for, I think, it, it, you know, is to identify commonalities. I think another area, so healthcare is one. Um, I think, another, you know, in a country that where we don't have universal healthcare, uh, where we don't have, uh, you know, government paid for healthcare. Um, I think another area is education. You know, a lot of people talk about reparations and particularly increasingly, you know, in the, in the Democratic Party. And, and I tell people, uh, you, well, you want, you know, that's a very divisive issue in the country right now. You want to bring the people together? Let's educate every kid. Let's, let's make sure our urban schools are as good as the private schools that, we, that the wealthy send their kids to. Let, it, let's do everything we can to level the playing field. How about an economy that works for more people? In the governor's race, wherever I went, I talked about the fact that, you know, if, if we believe in capitalism and believe uh, that, uh, that, that it is the, the best way to organize ourselves, organize ourselves economically, then we have to agree that it should uh, lift mo up more people. It, it can't leave so many people behind. So I think the economy, I think healthcare, I think education are ways that we can come together as a country um, and, and not be so divisive, uh, you know, in, in just focusing on race now and ethnicity. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't ever speak about those issues. They're real. Uh, they're, they're before us. We should talk about them. But let's work on them in a way that brings people together. And I just think too many people uh, on both sides are unwilling to do that. 
Uh, I used to talk, and I still believe, in the radical center. Uh, what is that? Uh, it's, it's the place that bring, you know, it, it, if you look at the history of politics, we're always trying to bring people, uh, you know, uh, to get to a majority. That means you have to, you know, nibble around the edges to do that. That means you have to identify uh, the commonalities that we uh, confront uh, in, in order to do that. And I think those are three areas where we could really bring people together and not be so damn divisive. Um, and so, you know, and finger pointing. And, you know, this notion that somebody should have to pay for, and I'm not now talking about reparations, for the rest of their life, for what their great-great-grandfather who lived in Europe at the time that our forefathers uh, were doing the things that they did. You know, I, 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 come on. I, I think we can come together as a country, uh, be a better place, a more perfect union, uh, in, in a much more positive uh, and uplifting way for more people than the way we're currently, uh, you know, tracking ourselves, just pointing fingers at one another and screaming. Justin, the question from the audience, um, which I think is, again, a very good segue from, from what the mayor was talking about. Has the left gone too far on identity politics or is the right overreacting? Well, look, we're, we're sort of broad brushing the left and the right, you know, and there are certainly pockets of the left that have gone too far. Um, but those who have gone too far have the luxury of being able to go too far um, because they represent, you know, very monolithic, you know, districts, you know, and um, you know, they'll be reelected no matter what. So they can take these kinds of moves and, uh, and politically survive them. Um, so, you know, again, this is a product of electoral incentives. Uh, if people had to face, you know, these folks who are, you know, leaning into identity politics, had to face a more general electorate uh, that was more of a cross section of America, they wouldn't do these things. So, yeah, I think that they're, they're both guilty of identity politics. Um, but the ones who are the most guilty are the ones who can afford to be, I think. Um, no one's leading with identity politics, you know, and sort of bringing people along with them. Um, you know, they're they're often, um, you know, succumbing to the pressures of identity politics uh, because of the short-term incentives to win. Uh, and we have to change that dynamic in the country by basically not allowing politicians to win by dividing us. You know, I think across all of those are various policy areas that uh, that Mayor Villarregosa was just discussing. Um, you know, there there should be a criterion that unifies all discussions of what we do. And we should ask ourselves, is the act that we are about to pursue going to break down boundaries between us, social boundaries, or is it going to reinforce them? Is it going to thicken them? You know, are we actually, you know, promoting a greater sense of social trust and cohesion, or are we undermining that trust? And I think in so much of our politics today, if you really look at it, they're benefiting specific groups or they're sort of signaling to certain groups without actually signaling to the whole um, and, and, you know, that's just not healthy in the, in the long run, uh, even if it's, you know, helpful and, and, and instrumental in the short run. Um, you know, with those policy areas, Molly, uh, that Mayor Villaraigosa was just discussing, um, these are cross-cutting areas. Everyone needs health care. You know, everyone cares about, you know, education. Um, even if you don't have kids in public education, you might, you know, one day. Um, and you want a better country because of it. You know, it's, it's as nationalist of an issue as it gets. Um, but the problem is that inside of these issues, uh, there are fear mongers and people who are exclusive in their approach to politics that are trying to tell you that if you help with healthcare generally, you're really actually helping minorities out. But actually, you know, unlike California, in the nation as a whole, more white people actually had insurance extended to them than uh, non-whites with the expansion of Obamacare. And if you look at like the politics of education, you know, there's this perception that like, oh, you know, you're helping a bunch of undocumented immigrants, you know, when you, you know, improve schools and allow them to have access to it. But actually, there have been numerous educational studies that show that white students who are in classes with the undocumented in more diverse spaces actually perform better on standardized tests. And so these are not policies that are exclusively in the interest of certain minority communities. They're in everybody's interest. And the more that we can actually convey that and communicate that, the better off we're going to be. Well, we are. You know, yeah, go ahead. You know, something that you mentioned, I think you write about, Justin, that I think is important. You know, uh, one of the things when I, I you know, we, while I was mayor, we increased the graduation rate by 60 percent. We went from one out of three failing schools to one out of 10. Uh, I didn't talk about Latino kids as much, and that's 
78% of LA Unified School District are Latino kids and you know, 95% are, are of color. But what I talked about was in a knowledge economy where your brain power is, you know, the motor force of that economy, educating everybody's in our interest. This is, you know, I, I, I didn't always speak about the, the ethnic and racial implications of it, though I did raise those issues from time to time. I also talked about, hey, this is important to all of us. If we're going to be, if they're going to be the future of the state, then we better educate them in a world where the knowledge economy is dominant. So there are ways to explain a lot of this that isn't so divisive and, and, and brings us together and appeals to, you know, people's intelligence, one, and two, their common interest. Well, we are about out of time, and that actually strikes me as a perfect note to end on, sort of bringing all these threads together. So thank you for that, Mayor Viragosa. I know we could go on for much, much longer discussing all of these issues with both of you, uh, but that does bring an end to today's program. Thank you, everyone, for coming. I'd like to encourage everyone to purchase this important and fascinating new book, Majority Minority, Wherever Books Are Sold. I'm Molly Ball, and this Commonwealth program is now adjourned. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.